thanks for downloading this official Munster Rugby podcast. For more, go to MunsterRugby.ie or subscribe to Munster Rugby on SoundCloud or iTunes. This, this is the Crooked Feed podcast. Hi everyone, I'm Duncan Casey and welcome to episode 3 of the Crooked Feed, the official podcast series of MunsterRugby.ie. Here we take a look at all things Munster, both on and off the field, get to know some of the squad a little bit better and meet a few legends of the past. Coming up this month, international referee Johnny Lacey discusses his transition from being a pro player to a top level referee and achieving his goal of officiating at the 2015 Rugby World Cup. As a player you want to play at the best level that you possibly can and referees it's, it's, it's something similar but then you've got to go and perform. And as part of our getting to know series we chat with Munster out half Tyler Blyendell on his decision to make the move to Ireland, initial injury setbacks, making an impact in the red jersey this season and his first Champions Cup quarterfinal against Toulouse this weekend. You know, it's a massive journey and I'd never even ventured into Europe anywhere so it was really packing up bags and almost a leap of faith and I was confident that it would all work out. Plus, tickets are like gold dust but we do have a pair for you. Win tickets to Munster versus Toulouse in the Champions Cup quarterfinal at Thoma Park on the Crooked Feed a little later on. The Crooked Feed Podcast a former Munster player, Johnny Lacey retired from playing in 2007 and since then has progressed rapidly through the refereeing ranks. He went from AIL to Pro 12 to Champions Cup, Six Nations and ultimately the Rugby World Cup in 2015. But it turns out his venture into refereeing happened almost entirely by accident. Through coaching you end up a refereeing, so to speak, and uh, I was in my office in Thoman Park with Jerry Moore and there was a Junior Cup quarter final between St Munchens and CBC from Cork and the referee didn't show up. So it was a bit of an issue and a bit of a crisis. So they asked me would I go and referee the match, which I did reluctantly, but uh, went out and there was no issues for me on the day, thanks be to God. And uh, it all started from there, really. What kind of path did you go on from being a, a, a recently retired professional player to becoming an elite referee? Well, obviously that first match was a bit of a shock. And then the MAR, the Munster Association of Referees, and David McHugh in particular from the IRFU and Owen Doyle, uh, obviously quickly realised that I ref this match and uh, they basically approached me would I you know, have a real serious go at refereeing with the, with the end goal of trying to make the Rugby World Cup in, in 2015. So they put a bit of a pathway in place for me and it, it took off from there. So basically I finished the end of that season as I had just gone back to my own club, Clan William, and I was player coach my there. My own club as well. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Both clan boys. Um, and that was very enjoyable um, that year. And then I decided to um, to go in from that September onwards. So the IRFU gave me a pathway with the support of the MER. So in the first season particularly, I did I did a lot of games. I did a schools game Wednesday, did a game Saturday, 20s in Munster, maybe a junior game on the Sunday. So... You know, I wasn't fast trying. I put a lot of matches in and I had some great guys out, out looking after me. Johnny Cole comes to mind straight away. And then obviously the IRFU's top level assessors were out watching me, helping me every weekend. And you owe a lot to them in terms of your development. I suppose you say there that they put a pathway in place for you um, that would have hopefully seen you refereeing at the World Cup in 2015. So that would have been 2007. So, I mean, that, that's eight years down the line. It's a very... Um, it's a very difficult thing to try and foresee what is going to be happening eight years down the line. Uh, when they came to you with that, were you a bit sceptical initially? And uh, a, a, a little bit, but I mean, I suppose if you have aspirations, no different, you understand as a player, you want to play at the best level that you could possibly can. I was the same, obviously played for Munster, never got to Ireland, played a bit of sevens for Ireland, but 
you know, you always want to drive to be the best that you can possibly be. And uh, that was always, the, the next World Cup would have been two eleven, would have been too too short. It would be an unrealistic goal to get to that. But it's no different in the players now. It's eight years out is, a, is, is the cycles and in, in they go in four years. But for players, it's nearly eight years. And referees, it's, it's, it's something similar. So I needed to get into professional refereeing pretty quickly we say after two or three years if I wasn't getting up there because I found it relatively easy up to our Ireland league level and then you move into the Pro 12 and people say, oh, you, yeah, you understand the game, you have the fitness and all those things are required for elite refereeing but then you've got to go and perform, perform well and that's where performance comes into it and that's where the elite part of refereeing comes into it. There's no point in being an ex-player and be fit and all that if you're not performing, you won't move up to the Heineken Cup level if you're not performing at the Heineken Cup level, you won't move up to the international level. And that's it's the same for players. Did the fact that you were an ex-professional give you an element of relatability with players when you did move up to Pro 12 level? Uh, I suppose I suppose empathy, I'm not sure if it's the word that I'm looking for, but I suppose you could understand where players are coming from and likewise they know that you've been in the position that they've been in previously. I, I, I think your word empathy is a brilliant word. It's a, it's a word I use a lot and game understanding and game sense is a word we use in, in general movement and coaching and that very much helps you you know I can see patterns of play sometimes which I can figure out A to B quickly it doesn't always work like that and even training with the senior team here on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday with yourself it's to be able to practice that game sense as a referee and be out there on the pitch just just continues to help your game understanding as a referee as well as and the game is changing so fast you just have to stay at the at the top end of it all the time. Could you tell us a little about your typical week? Uh, you obviously you have a role at Munster Rugby as well. So, what does a normal week look like for you? Uh, for for me, um, we're the only country at the moment doesn't have full time referees, but uh, that that could change because the the game is, is is so so time consuming for what you need fitness level wise. But my week would be. Um, on, on Mondays, I, we, we have two specific training sessions. Uh, we have our own strength and conditioning coach, Eugene McGovern, who's a, a next Munster player as well. So Eugene looks after my fitness very, very well. And George Clancy, Andy Brace, Joy Neville, we all train together on a Monday. You probably see us on the track yourself there. So we do a, a good fitness session on a Monday. And 7 o'clock is a gym strength session for us. Now, I'm very lucky that I obviously work for Munster Rugby and work closely with the coaches here and the players um, in the High Performance Centre and uh, I train on Tuesdays and Wednesdays so you're familiar with the sessions that we do some live scrums, line outs and then obviously there's elements of attack on Tuesday and there's elements of defence on Wednesday so very privileged to be able to train I think it works both ways because the players get a benefit they can ask questions uh, our discipline this year has very much improved in Munster I think it's down to the coaches putting that that strong emphasis on us not giving away penalties and we've been brilliant this year in terms of our discipline You alluded to the conditioning and the training that you do as a referee there um, I noticed online as I was prepping for the interview that in 2014 you were the fastest referee on the IRB panel uh, Yeah, yeah. I suppose if it's a few years ago I don't know if it was with, with the young guys that are coming through now but I'd still be there but look I was played full back and winger so pace is important especially with the guys that you're running after out in the field on a Saturday they're extremely fit athletic athletes that are you know you've got you to have an element of pace and it's not too hard now to beat Wayne Barnes and Roman Pot and all those <laughs> in a race so it's no big claim to fame <laughs> Is the training gruelling? Is it tough? I'm, I'm led to believe that it is it, it's quite demanding I mean uh, I, I know training as a player obviously we're using different energy systems uh, and everything that goes with that but 
it's difficult enough to lug yourself around when you're not getting to every breakdown. But as a referee, you're expected to be there making decisions and pretty much roaring and shouting at people at every single breakdown. Yeah, well, typically in a match like we, like yourselves, we use GPS systems that are reported back to World Rugby. Usually I run about six and a half to about seven and a half kilometres in a match. Uh, most of my running would be probably 67% of my high speed running because obviously you can't be at full sprint all the way during the match but it's a very different fitness from when I was playing I think I'm probably more aerobically fit from just constantly running as opposed to high speed running accelerations and explosive running which which rugby players do so you might have a, a spurt and then there might be a stop and play whereas a ref you're you're, you're constantly moving. But, yeah, we train specifically for that. We get fitness t- tested three times a year by World Rugby if you're on the international panel. A speed test, a multiple speed test over 35 metres eight times, and then the dreaded yo-yo test, which uh, is a multi-endurance running test, and uh, our minimum requirement for that, minimum, is 18. So even the players were surprised when sometimes we have to get 18 minimum, 19 optimum minimum. So... It's not easy to get there, especially when you're hitting into your 40s. <laughs> not at all. Uh, and just just for, for people listening, 19, uh, 19 isn't something I would uh, encourage anyone to go out and try or uh, <laughs> attain on their first effort at the OYO. So uh, that is quite a high standard of aerobic conditioning to achieve. Um, it's obviously a high pressure role and that can be daunting, I'm sure. And naturally, I'm sure you're nervous going in to ref big games. How does the pressure and build-up of being a referee going into a, a big clash compare with what it was like as a player? Yeah, there is a bit of a difference there. Um, I'm not the nicest guy in the world to be around, you know, 24, 48 hours. I'm better off on my own. It's very different. And it's probably, you get you get kind of angry at the people that are closest to you because you start going into that mental space where you're you're thinking about nothing else, only the game. When, when you played at Munster and Shannon, when I was playing club rugby, you're with, a squad of guys and that are all probably feeling the same thing so that's 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 a great a great memory that you know, when you have those team things you share those wins lost the nervousness all that as a ref sometimes you have a team when we go in Europe it's an all an all Irish team so that's that can be that can be fun and you can share that but when you're on the international stage you've different international referees they're all strong individual characters so they tend to do their own things so before big test matches you're you are a bit nervous, but I think that's a good thing as well because it sharpens the mind and focuses you on your job. But yeah, I can be cranky for a couple of days beforehand. Are you are you hard on yourself as a referee? Is it tough to kind of is it tough to accept that you made an incorrect decision or that you could have read a situation a little bit better? I know as a player, and you would have been the same. I'm sure we have a tendency to beat ourselves up with something if, if we get something wrong and. I'm sure that's the same across the board, but uh, I can imagine that's very true for referees as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Like if, especially if it's something that I should have seen. You know, sometimes you can. You know, in a game that's averaging test matches during the Six Nations, for example, it's maybe 180, 200 breakdowns in 38, 39 minutes of ball and play time. To see absolutely everything um, is difficult, and I get really annoyed sometimes when I when I miss something that I that I could have seen. Or I, I had a bad read. You you get a night. The very same as it when you're. I should have caught that ball. I should have been there for that. You get the same, the same feelings. But I mean that's that sport. You know, you, and I mean technology has been a massive help to us, especially mm-hmm. around the, the. You know, it creates lots of debates. But I mean, how far do you go with it? But it certainly does help you as a backup around. You never want to 
cause a team to win or lose because of a try that shouldn't or shouldn't have been. So that technology has been fantastic as well. Does it baffle you looking at uh, soccer and how how many decades they are behind? Absolutely, completely. When you see the volume of money that's discussed, and I, I do know that, for, for instance, a Hawkeye for an international rugby match costs €3,000 per game, which is a big cost to rugby, but it's when you see how much it costs in relative to wages that are being paid every week. And I know they said they can't do it for every league, but it doesn't happen in the All-Ireland League. There's no TMO. So it only happens at the pro end of the game at the top level. Uh, it doesn't happen in the British and Irish Cup or when we discuss you know, just the level below the professional team here. So I don't see why in the big, big competitions like Champions League or, or, or the, you know, the, the Premiership um, that they can't have technology to sort out these things. Do you enjoy the lifestyle of being a referee? Obviously, there is a lot of travel involved. Does that remain enjoyable or does it become a bit of a grind? Um, Obviously, there certain certain places are nicer than others. Uh, I'm sure a December game uh, on a Friday night when it's pissing rain Newport. in Swansea, <laughs> Swansea or Newport, yeah, isn't quite as appealing as uh, maybe March in Montpellier for a Champions Cup quarter final. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, you're 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 privileged to be there, as I said earlier on. The the, the other thing is, there's no home games for me. You know, I often be jealous with you guys. At least it's every second week you're on a plane, whereas. For me, last season, I had 38 appointments, 37 of them were outside of Ireland, which means an airport for me. Um, so from that point of view, yes, the travel can be a pain in the backside sometimes, but then when you, when you blow the whistle and start a game, you know, in Edinburgh or Glasgow or wherever in the Pro 12 or Europe, uh, that kind of, you kind of forget about that and you just get stuck into the game. It's just a part of, of your everyday routine for... Ireland and Wales in particularly, we travel more than any other country because basically we have to fly everywhere because obviously to get to Scotland, Wales or, or Italy in my case, we obviously have to get a plane every time for obvious reasons. So yeah, but then the flip side, you know, you get to go to Argentina and South Africa and France and Italy and, you know, you don't stay in not too shabby hotels and, you know, you get to know all the good restaurants and good places to go and... Yeah, so you, you 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 just you get your kicks from it that way. Absolutely. But I am I'm, I'm, I am jealous sometimes. Uh, this season I refed um, Leinster away and they had room on the plane and they lost the game. So it wasn't that I did them any favours, but they still gave me a, flew me home. So I basically did the game and two hours later I was back in Dublin, whereas I was supposed to be on a flight the following morning. So to get home, so sometimes I'm jealous of you guys. Your, you know, your planes get home and I know it's for recovery purposes and that's right too, but uh, I'd love to have my own jet to be able to get home after matches sometimes. <laughs> There's a lot of talk about various aspects of safety in rugby at the moment. Um, one thing that is gaining a little bit of traction in the media, not necessarily by the most informed people, is the idea of perhaps banning tackling above the waist, something like that. Uh, as a referee... Do you think that there's much more scope to alter the rules uh, in favour of making the game at, at least apparently more safe than it is at the moment? Or do you think we're kind of at our limit in terms of meddling with the rules uh, and responding to concerns in that regard? Yeah, look, for, for me, if it's refereed well, the, the law states at the moment that it must be below the shoulder line. I think that's that's fine once it's below that shoulder line. I think that's the most important thing to say. Um, the second thing is, yeah, there was a huge vo focus on high shots and shoulders to the head, and that's right because of concussion. So I think, 
it's very important that that shoulder line, I think it's fine where it is, as long as the legality of the tackles are there. And it was a huge focus on that and a directive sent out by World Rugby. There was no law changes. It was just basically they were really focusing down on that and people could say that it was a new law or rule change. There wasn't. It's either foul play or it's not. And it's there for the protection of the players. And I think that's almost paramount for me that the players are safe on the pitch. And those cheap, high shots, swinging arms to the head that we saw a little bit in the Ireland-New Zealand game, some of those shots needed to be eradicated from rugby and the suspensions for those now are gone way up. So I think that's right. Johnny, that was very interesting. Thank you for joining us on the Crooked Feed. Pleasure. This, this is the Crooked Feed podcast. Once to return to Champions Cup quarterfinal action against Toulouse at Thoman Park on Saturday, April the 1st at 5.45pm. Tickets are not easy to come by, to say the least, but we have two stand tickets to be won. To enter, answer this simple question. The last time Toulouse came to Thoman Park, Munster recorded an emphatic victory. Who was the first try scorer that day? Email your answers to competitions at munsterrugby.ie before 5pm on Thursday, March 30th. Be sure to leave us your name and contact number also, and good luck. A former New Zealand under-20s player, Tyler Blindell captained the side to victory in the 2010 Julian World Championship in Argentina. He went on to make 20 Super Rugby appearances for the Crusaders before moving to Ireland in January 2015. Injury plagued Tyler's first couple of seasons here at Munster, but this year has been an entirely different story. Tyler has emerged as one of our standout performers and it came as no surprise to any of us that he has been nominated for European Player of the Year alongside his teammates Conor Murray and CJ Stander. Yeah, it was a, obviously a big surprise. I just was scrolling through Facebook actually and saw the nomination, so yeah, pretty chuffed and a lot of big names have also been nominated, so it's a pretty proud thing. And great to see CJ and Murray, two of your teammates, uh, nominated as well. Great for three of the boys to be represented. Um, so everyone's very delighted with that, obviously. Uh, to go back a little bit to 2014, I would imagine something like being nominated for European Player of the Year was light years away in your head when you sustained a very serious neck injury a few months before you were due to come over and join us here in Munster. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what it was like dealing with a very long-term injury like that, a potentially career-ending injury? Yeah, I can. I was, uh, yeah, a tough thing to go through, and I was enjoying my campaign there with the Canterbury team and the ITM Cup, and that was cut short through this neck injury. And having just signed to come over to Munster, there was obviously, you know, a lot of question marks about would it happen. But obviously, the reassurances I got from Axel at the time were, you know, that was encouraging. The fact that Munster had the same view as me that it was a long-term thing, and they were happy to to support me and, you know, have me come over and get through the injury and have me contribute on the field. So, uh, look, there was no doubt in my mind that once the surgery was a success that I would rehab and come back strong. But as it happened, it did take a fair while. But, look, I'm delighted at where it's uh, turned out. We interviewed Francis in episode one and he was talking about how difficult it was to move so far away from home. In As I said back then, it's literally as far away from New Zealand as you can pretty much get. Uh, Francis had the luxury of getting stuck into playing straight away, so he was able to kind of immerse himself and maybe distract himself with on-field stuff uh, and potentially make the adjustment a little bit easier. What was it like coming over with a long-term injury to a place like Limerick? I mean, it's not New York, it's not London. Um, it's a charming little place, but it's small and it's quiet. Uh, did you find... That made things more difficult or were you able to just relax and get accustomed to life here? Uh, it was difficult but as you say it's probably as far away as possible and you know it's a massive journey 
and I'd never even ventured into Europe anywhere. So it was really packing up bags and almost a leap of faith and I was confident that it would all work out. But um, I was able to train when I came over, which was important. We had a, a one-week camp as well in Lanzarote, which was almost like a pre-season for me, although it was you know mid-season for the lads. So it was a great way for me to get to know the guys and it was very enjoyable and being able to train was great. But as you say, not being able to contribute on the weekends and the games that matter, yeah, it was tough. And and signing and coming in as the new guy, whatever you want to be able to perform and, and show those guys that you're worth. And, uh, you know, yeah, I just did my bit and that we had to bide our time and everyone was very supportive, which I was grateful for. Your bad run of luck uh, continued into the following season and... Uh, it was just it was just kind of setback after setback for the bones of, of maybe a full season. I know from being injured myself that it's incredibly frustrating even when you get a very definite timeline. Um, so if, if, you, if you're told you're going to be out for four months, it's tough to come to terms with, but you know you're going to be back in four months, whereas in your case it, was, it wasn't really clear when you were going to be fully fit again. Uh, did you get fed up at any stage and go, oh, I've had enough of this, uh, maybe this hasn't worked out and maybe it's time for me to go home or were you always confident that you'd make a full recovery? I was always confident we'd eventually get there and there was never any thought of leaving or going home or packing in the bags and retiring or any of that jazz. It was just we had to work out what was right to manage the injury and as it was my kicking leg, it was it's important to the position and to the team and look, we were juggling, juggling the team myself and what the management thought was best for the team and, and how we would go about things and as you say, we're just having a bad, bad run of luck, and it, you know we couldn't get it right for a while. But we put a plan in place, and it came right. And then I think the benefits have been seen this season now with consistent game time, being able to play week after week, it's been great. Let's go back a bit to when you were growing up in Christchurch. What age did you start playing rugby? I was playing rugby from day dot, yeah, <laughs> four or five, whenever. Were you always an out half? No, I think probably always a back, but I played. 10, 12, 15, halfback even in my young, young days. So, yeah, look, I, I just loved chucking a footy around when I was young and I guess always had that, that love of kicking the ball as well. That's probably why I ended up more in the out-half position as I grew up. At what age did you start to think that you could make a career out of rugby? I think when you kind of get to the high school age, around 13, 14, and you can see, guys, now the first 15 rugby was very intense. It was massive and a part of the school cultures. And, and then you saw guys were only a few years removed from school and they were starting to enter those professional teams. So when I cracked the first 15 at Christchurch Boys High, then it was like, you know, you're starting to get into the academies and you can see a pathway there. And then it was just about knuckling down and saying, right, this is what I want and just giving it the best shot. And it's kind of out of your hands whether you succeed. And... You just got to put your best foot forward. You were coached by a person that everyone in Munster is familiar with, Rob Penny, um, when you were back in New Zealand. How much of an influence was he on you? Yeah, well, look, he, I really enjoyed playing for Rob and, and the systems he had, and we had great success in Canterbury for a number of years. And look, I really enjoyed his personality and, and the culture he brought to the team and to the whole Canterbury environment, I think. And look, I really enjoyed my time with him. And, uh, yeah, as I said, it was great. You were a young, very talented player who I'm sure had a very successful career ahead of him in New Zealand. Uh, when Munster came calling and you decided to leave, how did people back home react? Was there any bitterness to the fact that you decided to go to Ireland? 
there was there was no bitterness within the Canterbury and Crusader environment. They were all very supportive, and I was probably one of the earlier young guys to start leaving maybe the New Zealand rugby scene, uh, whereas usually it was more the experienced guys that had had a long career there that started leaving for European shores. So uh, no bitterness, but um, I guess just it was the time for me to maybe put the ball in my court and just say, right, I'm going to go do something, a new challenge, and I'm just going to give it everything I've got and try and make it work. How did your family react to the decision? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they didn't probably see it coming. Uh, look, it was... Yeah, when you weren't playing as much as, I'd, as I would have liked back there, then when we thought maybe we'll have a look and see what's available and then when the Munster offer was kind of there, I discussed with them the whole way through and they were so supportive. They thought, you know, if that's what we're after, then let's have a crack and they've been there with me the whole time, which has been great. And when I decided that, yep, this is definitely what I want to do, there was, there was no qualms by them. They said, right, you know, go enjoy yourself and, and they'll have to plan a trip to come visit. When they did come to visit, how do they like Limerick and how do they like Ireland? Yeah, look, uh, I think my dad was down at training pretty much every day. So he's kind of got a coaching background and I think he enjoyed himself. And he was almost invited into the environment. He, he loved the, the hospitality and the guys were so friendly and always willing to talk. So I think he had a cracking time and... And my mum and dad, they got a lot of travel done, I guess, in and around Limerick and Kerry and Clare. And there was so much to see and they really enjoyed themselves and found the, the pub culture and the, the friendly locals. They, they had a great time. And I, I think from their own admission that they didn't get one drop of rain for the three weeks they were here. It was completely bizarre. <laughs> I must invite them back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see how happy they'd be if they came back now. People might be surprised to learn that it wasn't always set in stone that rugby would be the path you chose. You were also a very talented cricket player. You played representative cricket at underage level and probably had the goods to turn professional. What made you decide to choose rugby and when did you do it? Yeah, look, cricket is something I played since I was, you know, very young, five years old as well, and backyard cricket, and then cricket all the way through club and school level, and something I really enjoyed. And look, it was, you know, it was, we had a very successful school cricket team as well, and and a lot of players now have moved on to to the national team. So I just think rugby there, there was it's just something I really enjoyed, and there was probably more of a career opportunity with it as well, and. Yeah, maybe the passion for rugby just took over a little bit more from cricket at that, that age where the decision had to be made. So it was kind of a summer, winter thing during school. And then, you know, once you're kind of leaving school, you almost have to knuckle down and choose one. It's hard to split your time and and succeed at those high levels at both. So, yeah, chose rugby and no regrets. Do the two complement each other in any way? It's difficult for me to kind of comprehend that because I've never played cricket as much as I would have liked to. Yeah, look, they got their, they got their, obviously completely different, but similarities in, in discipline. Cricket, you have to be highly disciplined and skillful and hand-eye coordination. There's things that went hand in hand, but obviously completely different games. And cricket's probably a game many Irish don't understand. So, um, look, it's, it's something I really enjoyed and I still do enjoy watching. But uh, yeah, rugby is definitely the number one passion. Do you miss it? I do miss it. I do miss it. But maybe socially now, maybe one day when I retire, I'll go back and have a crack at a few 2020 games or something. <laughs> you are a hunting enthusiast, would that be fair to say? I do enjoy the outdoors, yes. 
Peter Romani likes to pretend that he is as well. I know he was very disappointed when someone that knew what they were talking about turned up uh, because everyone found out that he'd been bluffing everyone for years. Uh, where did the interest in hunting come from? You're a city boy, so it's not exactly normal, I would say. Yeah, Christchurch City is where I grew up, but um, obviously some lovely countryside around our city and there were a few boys in the Canterbury and Crusaders set up that were big into it and we, we went on a team activity one day in the pre-season and, and kind of a love for it there. Yeah, and that's where I developed it and I've just managed to get out and enjoy the outdoors and what we had around us a lot and something I do really enjoy. How does hunting in Ireland compare to back home? Obviously all the hillsides are much smaller. It's still very green and maybe a bit <laughs> a bit wet, but look, it's, uh, it's a beautiful place as well and it's just nice to get out and get fresh air and get away from things sometimes. You're getting married to Laura, your long-term partner in the summer. Congratulations on that. Uh, when guys tie the knot, I suppose they start to think about maybe longer-term plans. Uh, do you have any plans or any idea what you would like to do when you retire from rugby? Yes, I'm very excited about the wedding. I should state <laughs> that. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> look, uh, I think I'd enjoy getting into the coaching scene once I finish. Um, like I really enjoy that strategical and tactical side of the game and I think, you know, creating plans and trying to trying to get the guys alongside and and all go for that same goal, something I'm really into. So I think coaching is definitely something I'd look to turn a hand to once I'm done. You strike me as the kind of guy that would be an excellent coach. Uh, you seem pretty much unflappable. Uh, I've never seen you get stressed out. You're, you've a very relaxed approach to everything, but you com communicate things really well, which I think uh, I think would obviously lend itself to coaching in a very significant way. Uh, would you like to dip your toe into it while you're in Ireland at all, or would that be something you'd wait until you're back home to do? No, no, it's, it's, I think that's one of the things about coaching. It can be done anywhere, and as you say, it's it's a skill that you can develop as well. Maybe, you know, the communication, how do you get guys on the same page and, and towards that same goal, is, and also just planning long-term. There's plenty of things that I'm actually learning from the management this year, which I think they do great, so... Look, uh, it's something you can do anywhere, which is one of the appeals of it as well. Looking ahead to Toulouse next week, I watched them uh, put Leon to the sword on Sunday. They're a very dangerous side. They have an enormous pack and threats right across the back line with the likes of Palisson, uh, Luke McAllister, Maxime Millard. Where do you see their biggest threats coming from? Yeah, as you say, they're very exciting and uh, it's going to be a challenging task for us to tackle those uh, players and I think... The amount of offloads they throw per game is huge and, and that's coming from across the park and you mentioned a number of guys there but you know strong strong midfield with really fast attacking outside backs with yeah, as you say a gigantic forward pack to get the base from so it's going to be a huge challenge one that we're really looking forward to um, and we're just going to have to be there physically and we're going to have to be on task when, when that challenge arises. How well equipped do you think we are uh, for the challenges that lie ahead over the coming weeks? I mean, we've obviously had a fantastic season. I think everyone's in a really good frame of mind. Do you think we're ready for it? I think we are ready for it, and we're just excited for the opportunity. I think, you know, maybe if you go back to the start of the year, where would we be? Where would be in the European standings? We it would have been hard to say, but the momentum we've gathered through the European Cup and the pool stages has been unbelievable. The support we've had and to get the home quarter final is just so exciting. And, you know, I think the Irish guys as well, we've, we've had new caps in the Irish team who are going to be confident, plus the regulars there, that 
you know, had a pretty solid tournament. They're going to come back and bring a lot of energy to us. And look, I think we, we have to be confident, but we just have to continue as we've been doing the whole season. From your own point of view, it'll be great to finally get to play a game of knockout rugby in Thoman Park as well. Yeah, it's going to be an unbelievable experience. And, you know, it's going to be hard to kind of contain the excitement and maybe the nerves and just get get stuck into a huge challenge and try not to focus on the outcome. We obviously have a plan and just just enjoy each little battle that we have on that field. Tyler, best of luck for the rest of the season and with the wedding and the marriage. And thanks very much for joining us on The Crooked Feed. Yeah, thanks, Duncan. Cheers. This, this is The Crooked Feed Podcast. I'm Duncan Casey. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Crooked Feed. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to check out our previous episodes by subscribing to Monster Rugby on iTunes and SoundCloud. See you again next month.